Now we don't have any value. pile of sand problem i remember chunks of it i don't remember all of it it's kind of like the ship of the zeus right yeah i we're on we're on a beach obviously as we often both are on a beach oh all the time constantly yeah yeah, yeah we're like sand heads i think they call us oh yeah or like salt necks i don't know anyway we're on this beach and I take a grain of sand. I have this like crazy awesome power where I can grab singular grains of sand with my fingers. I'm sure that's useful. Has that that's that, that that's gonna be that's gonna be useful here on the yeah. beach. Yeah, right. <clears throat> Especially on the beach, right? So I put one grain of sand in my hand, and obviously I just have one grain of sand, and I keep adding grains of sand to that grain. And I keep asking you, do I have a pile of sand in my hand? And at what point does it turn from 10,121 grains of sand into a pile, right? So uh-huh. along those lines, I would like to posit a question. When does an exoskeleton become a mecha? Oh, okay. That's a good one. Um... Like, so like on one end, you have stuff like, you know, Neon Genesis Evangelion, where it's obviously a mecha, Right. Well, I mean, kind of, because it's also a huge woman. Well, yeah, that might not have been the best example. <laughs> I was like, that's your own mom, <laughs> but big. Yeah, <laughs> and also an angel. Uh-huh. And also like a Freudian manifestation of your own anxiety. God, what a good show. Anyway, uh, like a yeah. Gundam is clearly a mecha. Right. But then you have something like, on the other end of the spectrum, you have something like Elysium, right? Where it's an exoskeleton. Obviously, like, it's grafted onto their bones. But I feel like we could ask, like, okay, so Robocop, is he in an exoskeleton? Or, like, where does the cyborg kind of thing fit in? So I think I think it has to be, like, a percentage thing. Like, um... Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly how we would work out these percentages, but there's something about Robocop that I'm like, no, he's like a tiny mecha. He's like a little, so, a little mecha, like a man so you, size. So you one. think Robocop is a mecha? Yeah, I don't think that's an exoskeleton. You don't tend to have guns inside of your thighs in a, an exoskeleton mm. kind of situation. Also, he's arguably dead in there. He he might be dead. <laughs> so. Obviously, he's like a almost like a Frankenstein allegory, right? Oh or yeah. If we want to be spicier, we'd say he's a golem in in a certain way. So, well, let me ask you something else: 
is the golem an exoskeleton or a mecha? Ooh. Right? Oh. You see where this becomes, like, fuzzy. So I think a lot of people have posited in the past why the world is fucked up, and I think a lot of those theories don't account for the exoskeleton mecha divide, I would call it, and I think that's where we've gone wrong so far. It would make sense if the the Jews of 15th century Prague had developed the first Mecca entirely yeah. out of mud. It's the Ur Mecca, right? Oh, yeah. Gundams are like a big golem. Yes. Yeah. I see it now. You see it, right? Their cool so... helmets are like the Aleph inscribed onto a parchment and placed in their tongue. Yeah, so so I think like if we take this new uh, towards a new theory of Mecca and we combine it with extreme radical Maoism people's warfare, mm-hmm. we would finally be liberated. I do think that the capitalist hierarchical uh, megastate would not be able to withstand constant besiegement by, from Mecca. I believe yeah. if we had communist mechs, capitalism's done. It's just it's and just over. And that's what what I don't like about liberals, right? Because they're all like, "Give Ilan Omar a mecca." No, give everyone a mecca. Yeah, everyone should have a mecca, not just elected representatives. But they're afraid of that. You see, I've been I've been leaning really hard recently into the um, so there's a divide that I think is more or less fake in a lot of ways but every now and again the reality of it rears its head in only the dumbest ways it is literally always only dumb and that's the uh the communist anarchist divide i love that divide it's one of my favorite bullshit made up things yes it's probably the only if we had a good world that would be the political axis like that would be (laughs) the one um because you know you know everyone's roughly on the same side it's just methodological questions but I get confronted with some truly asinine um, things that make me suddenly re- like, like when people read Foucault once, and they're also anarchists, and they go, "That's <laughs> right. Schools are a kind of prison and a hierarchy. We should never have school." Yeah. And you're like, "Are you are you like eleven? And they're like, "What?" And be like, "Are you like eleven? Because that's what an eleven year old would say. You know, you could just do school." in a non-abusive way and that's that's the question they're like no can never have school and then they're like you look and you're like man these anarchists and someone's like yeah we should execute all of them and you're like what (laughs) what and they're like yeah i'm like one of the like like 0.5 percent of communists who actually say this because it's always like i see the weirdest kind of debates about like so obviously i have I have a lot of friends who are both. And then you get the anarchists who talk about like, oh, all these tankies, oh, they're always being all kind. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I know a lot of communists and I really don't see most of the stuff that you're talking about. Like people who go like China has never done anything wrong ever. It's more just that we bring a sinophobic and anti-communist lens to the actions of China where for any other state carrying out comparable things, we can focus on 
the specific wrongdoing and go that that thing is wrong. But then with China, it goes China is wrong and communism is wrong, which is which is a weird leap um, that we only really do for the other in the capital O sense. And I'm like, OK, well, that's not right. Then I look over at, at communists and they're like anarchists want two things and two things only a chicken farm outside of Seattle and polycules. And I'm like, that's a really funny joke. But do you think that that's real? And they go, yes. Yeah, this is my actual praxis. And I'm like, ah, that's why that's why revolution never happens. OK, OK, that's depressing. I think, <laughs> I think like, you know, we I don't like the left's version of woke scolding, which is praxis scolding. Mm -hmm. Like you haven't done enough praxis. <laughs> Show me your journal where you record all of the hours of praxis you've done. And I will tell you if that's enough for you to have an opinion. I, I don't like that. But if you think that, you know, fighting against anarchists or fighting against quote-unquote tankies, by the way, the fact that that world is popularized is like one of the biggest mistakes of the last decade. I feel. Oh, yeah. Because um, now liberals are using it. <laughs> and, you know, they just call anyone a tanky. Like, if you think that America should have Medicare for all, you're a tanky to them because they have no idea what that word means because they're liberals. Anyway, if you think those divides are important, then that just tells me that you're way too online and that you actually haven't done enough work with people because guess what? When you're handing out soup like a kitchen or when you're organizing a political protest, you don't have time and it's not interesting to ask someone whether they prefer Max Stirner's version of the dialectics or Marx's version of the dialectics. Don't get me wrong. The theory is important. We're on a fucking theory podcast. Like one of the oh, ways yeah. you can describe this podcast <laughs> is a theory podcast. Um, and it's important to read theory. Don't believe anyone who tells you that it's not. But these divides, you need to... Wow, this actually feeds into Robin Hood and all that stock GameStop bullshit. Like, you need to understand. Oh yeah, we that... haven't fucking talked about any of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you need to understand <laughs> that the algorithm loves these divides, and more than that, it loves them. It literally creates them. So, like six or seven years ago, what I would be, what I'm saying now, would have been considered like tin foil, right? But now that the, these companies have actually come out and admitted it the algorithm sorts your what you see online into shit that will make you pissed off so that you comment on it right so yeah if you whole engagement driven algorithm that it's it's yeah. the raw the the raw unmarked data and it's sort of um as, as a very brief digression that's actually a thing that hegel warns about in discussion of dialectics of something that is utterly unmarked and thus can't really be dialectically broken apart um, it becomes like a monad and that Deleuze brings up is like, yeah, this is either a vehicle of great change or ultimate chaos. Only those two things. It's never, yeah. never in between. And I think we that, know which that, one this one is. Yeah. And it also like amplifies something that I wanted to, to bring up anyway, that like people are surprised by the fact that like social media discovered <laughs> that hate is the emotion that most makes us act. And people were like, whoa, that's a big discovery. And I just look back at like, 10,000 years of human history. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> we we knew that. We knew that a long time ago. Hate has been 
a prime motivating factor for millennia, literally. So if you're an anarchist, they're, they're going to show you those 3% of quote-unquote tankies that think you should literally be shot and put in a gulag. And if you're a communist, they'll show you the 3% of tankies that say stuff like every single hierarchy on the planet is evil and like you shouldn't be allowed to raise your children because parental relationships are a hierarchy so that you get pissed off and you, and you comment on on what they're saying because that makes the ad wheels go and the ad wheels make a billion dollars a second for Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and all those fucking ghouls. Now, why did I bring up Robin Hood? Like, so, Lord's quote, the master's house will never be torn down by the master's tools, I think is, is limited because there are some ways for leftists to use the master's tools against the master's house. Like, I'm not totally against electoral politics. Like, if you look at the Southern Hemisphere and specifically um, Bolivia and other nations of that sort, Venezuela, they used electoral politics to get to where they are today, right? So it's possible. Yeah, and, but... we, and we don't we don't see the kind of um, sabotaging uh, present in the West, even even within things like England with Jeremy Corbyn, who in a global sense is, is nowhere near a radical leftist. And yeah. he's, he's like a pretty like center of the road left figure, like definitely left, but also not, not super far from the center. The level of sabotaging that went in and that, that has now been just fully disclosed by the labor party wouldn't occur if these vectors had no power whatsoever. Like if, if there really was no meaning whatsoever, you don't try to stop people like that. Cause you're like the machine yeah. will stop them automatically. I, I totally agree. And I think the reason they can stop you, though, is that Corbynism, which I'm generally in favor of, but the problem is that it does use the master's tools in a naive way. What do I mean yeah. by that? It doesn't introduce new actors. It is speaking to the same actors that the master's system has included in the discourse, right? So in that sense... Lord's saying is completely true. If you just play by the same rules as the master, then you will always lose. So going back to South America, where revolutionary governments or movements succeeded in using electoral politics to take power is where they breached the normative discourse of who votes and used indigenous populations that were excluded from society. They used them as a force multiplier to break apart the system, right? So if you just keep pandering, <clears throat> hello, Democratic Party, if you just keep mm. pandering to the same <laughs> suburban white people, you will lose. And that's why I think Bernie Sanders had the right idea by trying to at least, at least trying to expand the playing field. And that is where we come back to the like Robin Hood GameStop shit. And you know, by now it's been like two weeks. Two weeks is like, what, 50,000 years in internet terminology? There's I legit like... had almost completely forgotten that the whole GameStop thing happened. Granted, I have yeah. a lot of cynicism regarding these things, which I'm 100% certain that we'll touch on because um, it feels deeply relevant to this point that you're building to. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, just to touch on that like issue of memory, it, it just speaks to where we are right now as far as how fast things are progressing and going towards breakdown. That it just feels like a fever dream, right? It feels like things are so suddenly important and then so suddenly unimportant that it's unreal. Like, P 
people in Israel were talking about how can I buy GameStop stocks, which is absurd. Um, and then it just disappeared, right? But going back yeah. to what I was saying. <clears throat> well, there, there, there's, there's a brief mechanical thing that I think that we can expand on there that just yeah. sort of deepens us a bit, which is that if you're, uh, if specifically if you're American, um, you form this American-centric view of what the stock market is. When you think of the stock market, you think of the NASDAQ, you think of the New York Stock Exchange. But um, this is me revealing a little bit that I actually know an amount about stock stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> pretty much every nation in the world has their own market. So there's a London market, there's a Tokyo market, there there is a Tel Aviv market, um, which is very active. Um, this is where you get certain things like international investment into various nations. Um, like the Israeli market in general is actually fairly active because it funnels Western Western money into um, Israeli developments, sometimes mm -hmm. for good, sometimes for very, very evil. That's the West for you. Um, but yeah, we get this notion sometimes that we are the only stock market just because, to be fair, the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ are the two biggest and the two most active and the two most international. But if you're an investor, say, if you're like a normal person who's looking to make investments in France, you maybe aren't looking at the New York Stock Exchange. You maybe keep that in the back of your mind. But there is a stock exchange in uh, in Paris. And you can make investments in local things, which you can track a lot more easily. So it's that point that when ev literally regular ass people from all over the world are like, what's GameStop? Should I be buying this? How do I buy some GameStop? Do I, I'm, I'm from like the Philippines. How do I buy stock from New York? If I'm just like yeah. a guy, um, that indicates the, the pitch that this had gotten to. Yeah, totally. And it was like getting into the mm. point where local news stations in Israel were hitting up financial Israeli financial experts on Twitter telling them, can you come on and explain this shit? Because we have no idea what's going on. We just know that we need to cover this. And a lot of the time the experts will respond with, no, you don't. You literally <laughs> just don't need to cover this. And in fact, it might be irresponsible to do so, right? Because you're opening more people to this grift. So that ties me into, you know, all of these narratives that surrounded this thing that ignored what Lord was saying like on a deeper on a deeper level you will not do the revolution through stocks oh god no yeah it, it won't happen like i saw people online you know saying this is class warfare right like the reaction of the hedge funds and robin hood shutting down trade and Nasdaq freezing certain stocks and TD and all these actors, you know, putting a stop to this and basically saying, you're not allowed to use these tools was somehow the drawing of class lines, right, for class conflict. But interestingly, I think the antidote to that and the antidote to all of the surface level takes and analysis that we saw is Karl Marx, surprise, fellas. Oh, that's nuts. I can't believe it. Where'd that yeah. guy come from? Yeah, that guy. So I don't know if you knew this, but at least I'm a Marxist because Marx was really smart and he wrote things which are correct. And I think it's worthwhile to look back to what he wrote and kind of 
use that as an analytical tool to understand our current situation. I know that sounds crazy. That sounds like so outdated, but it's almost like a like a like a system of thought ordered around marks. Yeah, yeah. like a Weird. kind of marks uh, est, like a Marxist kind of. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, in this case, um, in this case, the text that way more people should read is the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, in which Marx analyzes, by the way, from a very short retrospective. He wrote this in 52, where Louis Bonaparte's 18th of Brumaire was one year before that. And he already had a pretty solid and incisive analysis. Again, smart guy. He, some of it is outdated because we have like, more perspective now and more distance and also just more archival evidence that we didn't have back then. But it is still extremely relevant. And its analysis, more than just describing the historical facts, where sometimes he gets things wrong, well, he just like omits a few things that weren't, it wasn't clear what the connection was back then. But his analysis is still extremely relevant. So I'm not going to do the whole revolutions thing go listen to the revolutions podcast it's a great podcast if you there's a season on this stuff on like 1848 and of course the french revolution very very recommended if if you're a marxist this is like foundational stuff because yeah one the amount the the severity of all those revolutions and then two the amount the sheer amount of commentary that we got not only from marx and the the proto-marxists so like Engels and people like that who are showing up at the international but a number of anarchist thinkers as well had a lot of really insightful comments on them. so it's like ground zero of like serious academic study of this stuff yeah i totally agree and like you already know this text right because this is where marx said without a footnote by the way which is a chad move um, <laughs> hegel remarks samuel no footnote and no one has been able to like <laughs> find out exactly where Hegel says this, that all great world historic facts and personages appear, so to speak, twice. He forgot to add the first time is tragedy, the second time is false. So there's no way that you don't know this line, right? It's constantly yeah. used. Mm -hmm. um, if you're it, even vaguely left, like DSA types would know this line. Like this isn't... I think... Not, not, not esoterica. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's like in, in the cultural mainstream... Completely. It's like a quote that you find in like boomer memes attributed to like Reagan or whatever. I mean, um, we even have a, there's a documentary that's fucking on Netflix called First It's Tragedy, sec Next as Far as. I forget the exact yeah. name of the documentary. It's been a while since I've seen it, but. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's, it's very, very common. So if you go into this text, he breaks down 1848 and 1851 and all of these, um, the moves that led to the Bonapartist. Um, revolution i guess you'd say coup that led to louis bonaparte's um reign and there's a really interesting part where marx analyzes all of the different class actors that took part in this event and again we won't go specifically into the details the text is free online <clears throat> you can just google it and find it and read it for yourself but shortly there's the proletariat as surprise as represented by the communist um, actors, and, and they were already calling themselves communists back then, by the way, and they were using the red flag as well. There's like a really famous painting of um, Alphonse Lamartine 
denying the red flag at the Hotel de Ville, which is a really crucial part of all of this. And so they thought that they could make an alliance with the petit bourgeoisie, so your artisans, your apprentices, and your free tradesmen, and together, you know, fight for more rights. But the second that they got what they wanted, the petit bourgeoisie abandoned the proletariat and told them to go fuck themselves. And then the petit bourgeoisie went to the capitalists and thought they could make an alliance to together expand suffrage and stuff like that. And the second that they won, the capitalists told the petit bourgeoisie to get fucked, right? And then the capitalists made an alliance with the big bucks, right? Like your bankers, your landlords, so not factory owners, not productive capitalists, but, you know, people who are making passive income rentiers, you might call them. Marx would call them rentiers, right? And the same thing happened. The second that the capitalists and the rentiers won, the rentiers told the capitalists to go fuck themselves. And then lastly, the rentiers made an alliance with the army. And that's where the buck stops. And then the army told the rentiers to go fuck themselves and crowned Louis Bonaparte. This so, uh, this yeah. political machine that he witnessed. So it's worth noting that uh, this this work was published, uh, written and published well before the capital. So that that notion of the congealing of forces of capital of the petty bourgeois with with the greater bourgeois of things like bankers and rentiers, and then that collision with the army, and then that collision with the state apparatus is when he's mentioning that in the capital, he's not making this up out of the blue. This is based on a historical thing that one, he was alive through and two, that he'd already commented very thoroughly on. So I, I, I only bring that up because I see from sometimes certain sectors of people sort of commenting that like, where does this come from? Or like a conspiratorial, especially when people point it conspiratorially, like against people like Bernie Sanders, who isn't even, who who's like a moderate in the global scheme of things. Yeah. That it's like, this is, not like you literally even learn this in history class. You just have the political implication of it gets stripped. At least in America, you learn about the French revolution and then the counter revolution. You just don't get told like, Oh, and then when we bring up Marx later, this is what inspired him. This specific thing. Yeah, I totally agree. So now let's bring it back to Robin Hood and this investing GameStop thing. Marx double clicks on this group called the Rentiers, the big bourgeoisie, right? And he basically identifies two strains inside of it, which have to do with their position towards the royalist regime, right? And there are two camps. And of course, Marx didn't make this up. This was like actual camps with their own definitions. There were the legitimists who thought that the Bourbon reign was legitimate. Therefore, they are called the legitimists. And they wanted to bring back the Bourbon monarchy. And there were the Orleanists who backed uh, the Duke d'Orléans, who was the Prince of the Blood. So if all the Bourbons died, he was supposed to become king, which he did. He became king after the July um, Revolution. We won't get into that. The interesting thing is, is that he said, look beyond these ideologies of monarchist attitude towards, guess what, the means of production and accumulation of wealth that set these groups apart. The legitimists are the old land-owning nobles. Their power comes from rents, as we said, right? They own the land. If you work it, you need to pay them rent. They collect their own taxes. They have their own agenda. They would like an old-school 
Ancien Regime Bourbonist monarch because that would enable them to ratchet up the taxes to levels of pre-revolutionary France. Whereas the Orleanists are new money, they are bankers, right? They make their money from the flow of commodities and goods and trade and so on. Their interests are opposed. They don't want the same thing. And yet, because they share the basic method of making money, right? Making money for money or making passive income, they are able to show a united face outwards while still struggling inwards, right? So here's the hot take. The hedge funds and the big capitalists and Bill Gates and all those people are legitimists. They make their money from huge mechanical financial tools that are completely unavailable and inaccessible to anyone outside of the game. They simply don't think or act on the same levels as us, right? You can get into algo trading and like micro trading and all that shit, but also just the access that they have to government and stuff like clearing houses and credit houses and so on. The people on Robin Hood are not the fucking proletariat. They're not workers. They are Orleanists. They are a new, well, not new in the sense, not, not in the historical sense, right? But in the sense that they don't come for money, but they're me, right? They work for high-tech companies, probably middle management, just like me, or even high management. They have disposable income to bet on fucking stocks, right? To take these stupid risks. And they thought in their stupidity and ideology instead of being materialist, they thought that they were playing on the same level field, the same playing field, sorry, level playing field as the legitimists, as the big players. They lit, they legitimately thought that. And all that happened around GameStop and around Robin Hood is that the, this big class, and together they make up one class, even though they have their differences, just like the legitimists and the Orleanists were all royalists, that class redrew the lines inside of it. That's all that happened. Those Robin Hood guys, those fucking startup companies and these big hedge funds slapped these people in the face and told them, sit the fuck down at the kiddie table because you're kids. That is all that happened. There was nothing sure. revolutionary about it. About it. One sec, sorry, last thing. Oh, no, no problem. Not only was there nothing revolutionary about it, these internal spats and internal conflicts are surprise dialectical that means that they are productive so when the legitimists and the orleanists fight against each other they go stronger for it it helps them develop their class consciousness it helps them develop their alliance right paradoxically so these fights not only did not advance the worker party or the proletariat they actually made the situation worse because on top of this, in the next few months, you will see legislation and mechanisms put in place to make the markets even more abstract, even more obscure, even more mechanical, so that not even those tiny Orleanists can do anything, right? And, and the capitalist class will go stronger from this, not weaker. So 
it bears mentioning now some mechanical things that go on within this, all of which point towards the the truth of your argument. Like I, I agree completely with with literally everything you just said. So <clears throat> the first part, starting sort of small and building up. So what exactly happened with GameStop was known as shorting stocks, and what happened in response is known as a short squeeze. The Brief definition of those. You've probably seen these all over the place now because it's reported on pretty wildly. Uh, pretty widely, is that um, there's two types of terms for markets. A bull market is when the general movement of the market is increasing in value. A bear market is when it's generally decreasing. On paper, you'd think you can only make money on a bull market because you invest at a lower point, sell at a higher point. Yes, as as we've learned, that is beyond not true, um, uh, which, which is one of the insane, like literally this is where we get the imagery of the vampire for the stock market. There are admittedly, I really hate this part, there are admittedly some really gross anti-Semitic connections between vampirism and stock markets, but yeah. this is a mechanical non-anti-Semitic one because it's specifically about their function, not about identity markers or things like that. Um, because anti-Semitism is bad. Shocker. Um, don't like it. Um, <laughs> we don't like but, it, folks. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> yeah. But So shorting stocks is one of the ways that you can make money on a bear market. The way that it works mechanically is that a big, big, big hedge fund, and I'm going to touch on how big in a second, um, can do something where it reaches out to basically the holders of a stock. And it goes, I would like to borrow an amount of these stocks on the short term. And what's important to note is you're borrowing an amount of stock, not a value of stock, because that's one fundamental um, alienation. Um, so Marx Act has comments on markets as well. N not going to get too deep into that because um, I want to stay focused on these mechanics. But this is also part of where his notion of uh, alienation of labor comes from. It's not just on the worker. It's also as you build upward and outward. So there's a fundamental alienation of amount of stock and value of stock. This comes from like the notion that the value of a stock may increase or decrease, um, even though the object you hold is exactly the same. And there is a fundamental kind of lunacy to this because like the value of lumber, like the practical value of lumber in a lumber yard doesn't really go up and down. There's the amount that you need it right now may go up and down, but that's separate from, well, if something happens in the future, I will need this lumber. So it remains exactly as useful. I just don't need to use it right now versus a market-oriented mindset, which is because I don't need to use it right now, we can throw it away if we want. And then that's where you get into situations where it's like, oh, a natural disaster happened and you threw away all the fucking lumber. So now we can't repair anything. Um, but in this shorting scenario, you borrow an amount of stock, and what you do is you immediately sell it for whatever value it is, like the second that you get it. And then uh, when your uh, term comes due, because again, you were, you were borrowing an amount of stock, and so at some point you have to give that amount back. What's important to remember is you borrowed an amount of stock, not a value. So you only need to give that many shares back, no matter their value. So your hope is that the value drops precipitously, and then you can buy back the amount that you need to return, and the amount that you buy it for will be pennies, where before you sold it for dollars. And so you've pocketed a huge amount of money, because you pocket basically the difference between what you sold for and what you bought for, and then you hand back the stock. Now, 
on paper, if the markets worked in a purely, uh, I don't want to say fair way because economist types would put on their well actually cap, but actually, let me leap into the second point because this will explain it. If markets were non-dialectical, um, especially non-continuously dialectical, then there wouldn't necessarily be anything wrong with this. If the act of trying to make money off of the dropping value of a stock did not contribute to the rising or dropping value of a stock, whatever, you're just, you're just doing a neutral action. However, the stock market isn't a stable isotope. It is, it is, like all things in the world, a dialectical enterprise. In fact, this is two things. One, this is how we know dialectics are a good tool for understanding the world. Because yeah. the, the usefulness is not limited to leftist concerns. It's not a political tool. It can be politicized and made a political tool. And Marx's body of work was him doing exactly that, him going, I'm witnessing dialectics in the world, and I want to know how to make that work for people as opposed to for um, instruments of oppressive power. But it's precisely because we see it everywhere all the time without any kind of moral demarcation that we know it is true and real. Because it's important to remember, Hegel wasn't a communist. Hegel was born like 200 years before Marx. Two or 300? Was it? it was the 1600s, right? Yeah. Um, I, I get timelines mixed up. Um, but he was mar remarking on the stuff before, well before Marx was using his stuff. Um, his thought as a philosopher was more the generalized philosophical stance. I want to understand the systems of the world. I don't necessarily want to judge them. It's not that judging isn't important. It's just that that's not my job. Other people will take my observations and learn how to make judgments and build off of them. I just want to make the observations and make them as true and rigorous as possible so that they may be useful. This is why he retroactively is considered part of the legacy of communism because it, we wouldn't have Marxism if not for Hegel. Um, but it's because yeah, of that. I just want to say that you should remember this point for the book discussion. Oh yeah. It's, um, it's a sense of philosophical humility that a good philosopher doesn't think I'm going to change the world. They think I'm going to observe the world and the people who should be changing the world hopefully will find use in what I've done and through it, they will be able to change the world. Um, so I bring this up because we, we witness dialectics everywhere. The, um, uh, biological evolution is a certain form of dialectics made rendered literal in the flesh of the world. Um, but likewise, the movement of money. I mean, this is also trying to bring up to people that under, under communism, you wouldn't, it's not necessarily that money or trade disappears. That's insane. That's, that's a weird thing. Like there will always be a point where I have something that you don't have and you want it. So I give it to you and maybe you give me something in return. That's not, that's not anti-communist. That's not what anyone is referring to. It's yeah. the meta structures that build on top of that because those flows, and it's important to think of dialectics. One of the ways that can make it more literal as opposed to abstract is its flow states. Um, like one thing flowing from one place to another place through some kind of mechanism. This is actually where we get the relations in dialectics to things like physics, 
to things like calculus because these are the mathematics and the sciences of flow states. This becomes important when thinking about capital, capital with a big C, things like the flow of um, money and hedge funds. So this is, as we were mentioning, this is the rentier class. This is beyond owning a building. This is beyond owning a factory. This yep. is, I can decide if the factory owning capitalists get to make any money. Like, I can crush them because they're masters to men, but I'm a god to masters. Um, and the, the terror of this is that in theory it could build out, you know, infinitely upward. Um, but so within this flow state kind of thing, the act of so all short purchases have to be publicly declared because of certain market regulations that make it so that you don't do insider trading, you don't do backroom trading, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. We all know that kind of like we know that Martha Stewart went to jail for insider trading. We know insider trading is a plot point in like the movie Wall Street. And but it basically means I can't make a trade behind a closed door because that's not fair to other people who want to make a trade. They need to be abreast of these situations because maybe it affects their uh, investment decisions. As it plays out here, when you declare a short purchase, people look at that and they go, oh my God, they're doing this either because they know the value of the stock is about to tank or they're about to try to make the value of the stock tank. And what I know is that if my holding position includes that stock, I want to dump it right away because they're going to try to annihilate the value of what I'm holding. Mm -hmm. The problem with markets is that the value of a stock isn't based on something fundamental about, about the business. It isn't based on some material reality. And this is where Marx also fixates on materialism as opposed to the abstractions of markets that, say, Adam Smith was focused on. Um, because it's not based on this materiality, it's based on the immaterial realm of is it wanted or is it not wanted? The fact that people no longer want this stock because they're scared it will lose value causes them to sell it, which causes it to lose value. The mere act of going, I'm going to short this, or I'm going to make a short option on this stock causes the short option to become a smart thing to do yeah. because it annihilates the value on its own. This is, this engine is what can destroy a company like out of the blue. Like they're not doing anything wrong. None of their employees are doing anything wrong. Maybe they're a good company. Maybe they're a bad company, but they're not being annihilated to the value of zero because of anything they've done. They're doing it because some hedge fund went, I'm going to make a short option off of there. And everyone else went, oh my God, they must be a, a toxic stock. I need to dump it immediately. Now this all benefits the initial hedge fund because when their short option comes up, they've destroyed the value of this company. So they pocket an even bigger difference. Um, on paper, it seems, so this is where the rhetoric comes from of people being like, oh, well, we need to resist this because it's, you know, hedge funds are, but we need to remember that markets are dialectical. And what dialectical means is that there are multiple vectors of force, not always just two, but there's at least two, sometimes more. And here is the, the, the mechanics behind what uh, Eden was saying. There are other hedge funds that are invested in the companies that are going to get shorted. The minute that this, something like 
23%. It was either 13 or 23. So admittedly a fairly big difference, but it's still substantial. Yeah, it's still substantial. 13 to 23% of investment in GameStop during the attempted short were other hedge funds. When we drove up the value, we as in like the capital W, we, I, I didn't invest in it. Um, when we drove up the value of GameStop to stick it to the man, other forces that are just as much the man made fucking oodles of money. Yep. Th- this is part of what we mean mechanically when saying that the stock market is one of the tools that the master's have can't be used to, to disrupt it. Like, obviously, there are certain ones that can. This one is not one because the sheer dialectical nature of the stock market means that when you try to drop the value of one stock to punish one for like, let's say we try to drop the stock of Apple to punish Apple, a hedge fund will see that it's dropping and they'll take a short option. And the mere act of us attempting to punish one company enriches a hedge fund. We try to buff the value of a company up in order to defend them against a potential short squeeze. Another, uh, another hedge fund pops in and does the exact same thing, but in reverse and makes money off of our defense. It's, and the last like point that wraps all of this up is that these movements are movements of scale. By, by that, I mean, it's the same argument of why be a communist in America when you can't defeat the United States Army, um, which is admittedly a fatalist stance, but there is a value of truth to it, which is which is one yeah. of scalar value. Maybe you can make your workplace more equitable, but can you defeat an aircraft carrier? Can you defeat 30 plus aircraft carriers, which is the amount that the United States has? Um, can you defeat an intercontinental ballistic missile uh, nuclear empowered army? Likewise, within the realms of capital, you can make an investment in a stock. And I don't begrudge people who made money off of the GameStop thing because families need money to survive. That, that's a reality. Um, but the major, the major difference is you and I can't do a short squeeze. If all of us, like basically all of us listening on here on various other leftist podcasts, if all of us banded together in one big coalition, we probably wouldn't have the amount of capital needed to buy a short op- a short option contract, period. Because you have to buy them in scale. Scales yeah. that are deliberately so big that only these massive institutions of capital can buy them. Like, it's... That's, that's like, also a really good point because people were talking about, you know, numbers. They were, like, looking at the, the account of deep fucking value he's the guy who started all of this mm-hmm. and they were like pointing to it and they said oh he went from what was it 50k he put on 50k and now his account is worth 22 million dollars and that sounds like a lot of money but it's like that exercise of the difference between a million and a billion 22 million dollars and even the difference between 50k and 22 million dollars is nothing it is nothing literally Amounts of money 10 or even 100 times bigger get exchanged on the NASDAQ floor every second. Every fucking millisecond if you get into algo trading. So like, I completely agree with your point about scale. You're not there. It doesn't matter how many people of us there are. We won't be there. And that's, 
funnily enough, that takes us back to the pile problem. Right? Because <laughs> people think that becoming a billionaire is about accumulating $1 at a time until you get to be a billionaire, until you get to have a billion dollars. And that's not the way that it works. Being a capitalist is not about having a number of dollars in the bank. It's about access to law, control over politicians, access to financial instruments like clearing houses and brokerages and credit houses and contracts and stuff like that. And it's about a culture. And super importantly, and I think this is where we'll segue to music and end the book, is it's about language. So when Langdon told you that shorting an option makes it go down by the very fact that you're shorting it, what if that doesn't happen? Or what if it doesn't happen fast enough? What do you do? Now put yourself in the hedge fund mindset, right? You're not just you, you're, you're a hedge fund guy. So you don't go home. You don't say, oh, well, I wanted to make 100 bucks and I made 50. That's still plus 50. I'm good. No, you need to make those 100 bucks, you know, just 100 million or 100 billion even, right? So what do you do? Do you give up? No, you use language. You hire experts. You use PR companies. You make press releases. You do everything you can to appear objective and then trash that stock to death. You go on Mad Money and you go on C-SPAN and Bloomberg and all these parts of the capitalist apparatus and you trash that stock until it dies, right? And of course, you can't just go on air and say, that stock is bad because I want it to be bad. You have to say, because I'm an expert, because I'm a financial expert. And how do people know that you're an expert? By the words that you use. You use stuff like short squeeze and gamma squeeze. And you don't call it stocks, you call it securities, right? And you don't call it a bull market or a bear market. You call it all sorts of bullshit like uprushing market and all sorts of nonsense jargon because that is the trademark of an expert, right? So language here is, is utilized as the oil that makes this entire machine work. And if you look at the other side of this, like the Wall Street bet side, it's exactly the same thing there. Diamond hands, hold the line. Um, loss porn, all these terms serve the exact same purpose. They mark a class. They mark a group of people and they are mechanics, right? They are mechanics being used to keep the system running. Without diamond hands, deep fucking value can't mobilize Wall Street bets to make fucking $21,500,000 or however much he made. He he needs those terms to mobilize his people, right? Um, so all of that to say, you know, we're going to talk about language in, in the book entry and we'll take a look at um, one writer's attempt to not only deconstruct all of this, but also to construct an alternative language that might create like an alternative perspective on things. But before that, what are we listening to, Langdon? That is a great question. Um, let me look at what's actually come out recently. My brain turned to absolute soup when it came to new metal records. Cause I was like neck deep in writing a bunch of different things. I've and got one. Oh, hit me up. I've got a really interesting one. So there's this band in the blasted 
hellscape known as Connecticut Ooh. called the dark and Storm. evil realms of my birth. Yeah. Oh, you're from Connecticut. That, I am. Yeah. A, a, a little Langdon law there for you. Deep, yeah. deep law. So these guys are called stone Hilo. And this is one of those rare bands where not even people like myself and Langdon who are, are I'm not paid, but like I'm hired or, or used to classify genres, right? I listen to a band, <laughs> I classify it in the genre, I write, it, I write a review for it, right? These are one of those rare bands where I'm just like, I don't know what this is. Okay, just leave me alone. Don't, don't make me <laughs> classify this. So it's like, here are some words to, to like tie, to prepare you for what you're about to hear. Mastodon, black metal, grunge, avant-garde. I'm way the well, fuck in. This sounds yeah. all the way up my fucking alley. No, it definitely is. So like put all of that in a cauldron and mix it around and you get the latest release, um, the upcoming release called Conquistador. It is releasing in April, 30th of April, and there's one track from it out so far called Into the Spoke of Night. It is the closing track, and that is an unbelievably Chad move to release your first sing single as the closing track of the album. I love that shit. Especially for like such an such an album oriented culture of heavy metal music where you know you you position your closer to be the the like grand finale uh, like like an anti overture and to be like no that's your yeah. entry fuck you i'm like, that's fuck that's you. baller yeah. <laughs> totally. that's, that, that's that's nice. very very rock and roll so so if you think about it, it's like the tappy progressive kind of vibe of mastodon if you think about crack the sky mastodon and those very trademark kind of riffs that dominate that album and then the singing has like these grunge influences, kind of like the Gargoyle album from last year. These grungy influences, but they're very theatrical and over the top, like an avant-garde release. And then the music, and especially the drums, do all of this black metal stuff, like really cold and abrasive blast beats and these weird tremolo-picked riffs here and there. It's super unique, and I've been listening to the album in full a lot lately and i still like don't make me classify this um so just let it go let let those definitions go and check out into the spoke of night
All right, that was Into the Spoke of Night by Stone Thrower. Um, Hilo, Stone Hilo. Wheeling. Stone Healer. I, I'm, I'm dumb. I can't remember words that literally I just said. <laughs> Let's talk like, about no, language. No, they're gone. They're dead. Out of here. Yeah. This reminds me, at some point, we got to have a uh, an on-air uh, music duel, because I saw your posts about the album Language again, and it reminded me that one of the few musical things we disagree on is... Uh, the band the contortionist this is like one of the only things that we disagree on yeah yeah we should i, I i'm worried about like the cosmic ramifications of such a conflict we will create a a, a primordial schism in the fabric of the universe <laughs> yeah we should do that sometime that should be fun yeah let's talk so about our something. book yeah that is awesome so the uh the book that we're uh going to be covering this time is called uh native language native the, tongue native tongue damn i'm i'm language is the name of the fucking contortionist album man i am dumb <laughs> i am dumb uh, i'm like i'm looking at the book right now and i'm like that's not nope nope new name i'm renaming you yeah so it's called native tongue um by uh suzette hayden elgin this is an author whose name i'd seen around but hadn't really mm -hmm dove into um she she lives in the same kind of space as like uh anna kavan of like yeah very much a slipstream author and you know both in terms of the era and in terms of her uh relation to the canon of of sci-fi but where someone like anna kavan is noted for almost being more a literary fiction author that plays with the tools of sci-fi in order to accomplish certain ends Elgin almost feels like the inverse of that, like her, mm -hmm. her work, her, her overall body of work. And I, um, I only really dove into her because, um, Eden was super excited about this. And I was like, one of the reasons why I wanted, uh, Eden on, uh, as co-host at this point over a year ago now, um, was specifically because, you know, like me and Gareth fell into a groove that worked really well and we're super happy with all of that. But then it's like, okay, if you want to go into a different direction, you have to find someone who likes the same shit as you, but knows different chunks of it. And so it was like, Eden gave me like a thumbnail pitch and I was like, yes, yes, this immediately. Yes. <laughs> I just went nuts. Um, but yeah, she, she sits in kind of like an inverse relation where, her overall body of work is very much one built out of a profound love for science fiction. Mm -hmm. The only problem is, and this is actually very similar now that I think about it to um, Ursula K. Le Guin. Yeah. Her problem is she sees certain vectors that are like, that should be better. We deserve a better version of this. And that means that needs to be different. So using tools of philosophy and literary fiction and sociology and things like that, to troubleshoot elements in sci-fi that can be better both for people and for the books themselves, um, as opposed to uh, that reverse relation, which is one of the great magics of slipstream, I think, is that it, it, can, it can come from one of two directions. It can either come from people who, like, I love literary fiction, but I want to give it that kind of spark, which means I need to pull from this pool. Or it can be people from that world that go... I want this thing that I love to be bigger, stronger, and more powerful than it currently is. And that means I need a tool from outside. 
And so I, I don't know. This this was just really exciting for me. Yeah. Also, if you look at the covers for it, modern <laughs> covers of Native Tongue. What I want to get this out of the way early on so that we can focus on the meat. But modern <laughs> covers of Native Tongue very much give it a slipstream kind of yeah kind of feel where it's it's a vibe. You look at it, you're like that could either be a really rich literary book, which it is, or maybe it has some like crazy sci-fi stuff, which it does. You know, but it, it gives you that kind of meanwhile. Meanwhile, the all-important original DAW publication cover is fucking insane. It is so fucking weird. This was part of Eden's pitch to me. He sent yeah. me this picture, and it's a big, like, it looks like a pustule-covered lizard man alien looking at a human baby on, like, a plate. But, yeah. like, not in an I'm-gonna-eat-you way, like, more like in an oh-you're-so-cute. But it's like the baby is the size of, like, a kitten to this fucking enormous alien with beakers <laughs> in the background yeah no it's, it's worse incredible. than beakers it's test tubes with babies in them oh yeah I, I i i just noticed that i yeah the copy that i got has like a boring normal like scare quote good cover but like you can't be a sci-fi fan or a fantasy fan and not love these absolutely fucking insane covers <laughs> so like like and and, and the funniest thing is Aliens are not a big focus of this book. There no. are aliens in the background, but it's like two or three scenes where aliens actually do something. It, it does the classic sci-fi setup of like, oh, I want to set this in an era in the future where certain things that I need for, for plot or philosophical reasons yeah. can occur. And then her doing the normal kinds of projections of like, well, okay, how can I establish that it is that kind of thing? And part of it is we've made alien contact and there, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very much focused on people on even on earth. Like there isn't even a huge massive focus on like in the 53rd galaxy, like, <laughs> yeah, totally. No, it, a really insane choice. <laughs> like I don't, it's, the, it's totally insane. The only thing I can think of is that like one of the um so this is touching on my my knowledge of publication and stuff. Um yeah. it's that certain things like cover design or font design or it actually this this uh touches on a conversation I'd had with someone not too long ago. One of the reasons that you're encouraged not to self-publish in the world of literature or like prose literature as opposed to poetry, which has a completely different kind of body to it, is that in the world of poetry, certain signalings of amateurishness or passion overcoming professionalism are broadly considered to be positives. Like, obviously, there is a lot of bad poetry, but we generally want poetry in a certain way not to be necessarily cold and cerebral, but to be this, like, rich and effulgent, almost like foam that, like, emerges yeah. out of the body. And so the notion of, like, the cover looks a little crappy, the binding isn't all that great, like... It, this this becomes like an added kind of energy like oh this was so meaningful that they needed to get it in my hand as soon as possible meanwhile in the world of prose we tend to use things like covers and font choices and page layouts and paper quality and bind quality these are subliminal signaling and it gets complex obviously because there are certain sci-fi books where you want the yellowed page, you want it to smell musty, you want it to be fraying a little bit. Like, I wouldn't want a hardcover copy of this book. It feels wrong. I want it yeah. to be a soft cover copy. Like, and just, yeah, like there, there's that sense of like, um, 
So there's pocket size editions of books, and that name literally comes from the fact that if you read a lot, you'll know exactly what I'm saying here because you will have done it. You can fit these books typically in a regular jacket or jeans pocket. Mm-hmm. And if you're a big nerdy reader, especially in youth, you will have memory of prior to smartphones having one or two books in your pockets at all times. So you, and th- yeah. like this cries out for that. And there's something about this kind of cover approach that... Um, especially considering the subject matter of the book, which, God, I can't wait to dive into, um, it feels like a deliberate kind of trick that the publisher does this to get one audience who is so well-trained with certain signaling that, like, oh, this is a book for me. I can see it from for everything, from the cover design to the fonts to the publisher to the... They will pick it up, and because of that, they will give something like this a shot, and they are the kinds of people who need a book like this. Like, I, I think it's really ingenious. I just love it a lot, but I, I I totally agree. We need to talk about the book itself. So let's talk about the author first, cause Mm. she fucking kicked ass. So Suzette Elgin was born in 1936 in Missouri. And then she attended the university of California in San Diego in the sixties. And she actually began writing science fiction to pay her tuition. By the way, one of the interesting things about a lot of science fiction is that working class people made it. Philip K. Dick wrote to eat. He sold stories so he would have money for rent. And that's also true for a lot of other authors. George R. R. Martin actually had to be posted up in Roger Zelezny's house because he didn't have money for rent and food. And Zelezny and his wife took him in. So interesting side note here. She got her PhD in linguistics and was actually the first student at this university to write two dissertations. She wrote a dissertation on English and on Navajo, which is just so fucking badass. Right? <laughs> she was, yeah, she was in general very knowledgeable, very smart. She did programming, you know, back in the seven, late 70s, 80s, where programming was just being a thing. She references Visual Basic, or rather Basic, even before Visual Basic. In the book a bunch of times um so she was a really cool person she died unfortunately in 2015 she was 78 years old um and she had a really prolific career mostly in short stories she also wrote poetry and a lot of non-fiction including a series called the gentle art of verbal self-defense what is also sometimes referred to this is a real thing verbal aikido which is basically a way to use language to de-escalate situations and get what you want without being aggressive. And she would often frame that as a counteract, an an antidote to male-dominated, masculine-dominated, aggressive language, right? And she spoke a lot about how English, but also language in general, modern language, is geared towards men it's geared towards explaining men's emotional states and also works from outside of those states so she had that hypothesis and native tongue was actually the thought experiment to check that hypothesis which is just a really cool idea if i wrote a book about a language that was made by women and I built that language, which she did. We'll get to it in a sec. 
will women adopt it? And she set a limit of 10 years. Like, I'll publish this book, and if in 10 years this doesn't happen, then my hypothesis was wrong. And that's kind of what happened. The book didn't get a lot of traction. As she said herself, the Klingon language, which is as masculine as you could possibly get, has had a tremendous impact on popular culture. There's an institute, there is, by the way, there's a journal, best-selling grammars and cassettes and so on. Nothing like that happened with Ladan, which is her language. And then she's very tough on herself. My hypothesis, therefore, was proved invalid. And the conclusion I draw from that is that, in fact, women, by which I mean women who are literate in English, French, German, and Spanish, the languages in which native tongue appeared, do not find human languages inadequate for communication. And I think that's like being very harsh on the experiment. There's like a million reasons it could fail. <laughs> like, linguist, linguistics is so dominated by men that it's hard for women to get their hands on these kinds of languages. And capitalism doesn't give people the time to study languages and learn them, even though they want them to. And like a million other things. And the book kind of like became this sci-fi reader's masterpiece, but failed to generate the same sort of hype like, let's say, The Handmaiden's Tale. There's a lot of overlap between these books, and I think this book does a lot better, by the way, than The Handmaiden's Tale. Um, and it's also in the same class as Octavia Butler's books and also Le Guin's, of course, this sort of feminist dystopia of the United States. But inside of this book, and what makes it so unique, is hidden this thought experiment about a language. So let me just wrap up by giving you the synopsis without going into spoilers. So in the late 21st century, well, earlier than that, the is it the 19th Amendment that gives women's, women yeah. the right to vote? Women's suffrage? Yes. And so that's repealed in, in the wake of, of some riots or other. And women cease to be legal entities. So they go back to the feudal patriarchal structure wherein the husband or the father own the woman. Um, and in, in parallel, humanity dis discovers interstellar travel and lots and lots and lots of aliens, specifically a lot of humanoid aliens that have languages that might be understood, but they need a linguist to decipher. And this class of people called linguists arises. They basically understand that teaching languages is much easier, and the only way to get to a native speaker level is by teaching it to babies. So they basically regiment their entire life in this sort of Spartan lifestyle towards teaching their children languages. So from a very young age, like as babies, you'd get spoken to in all these languages that you're targeted to learn, and you'd have this regime, right? Every minute of your day will go towards either furthering the linguist house, it's like a lineage kind of thing, there's 13 of them, or studying languages, or teaching others the language that only you are the native speaker of. The interesting thing is that those languages become a bottleneck for humanity's expansion. Right? Humanity can only expand as fast as these people can adapt and learn to new, language, uh, new languages so that trade deals can be drawn up and alliances made and, you know, take me to your leader in whatever language we, we happen to have discovered. And so that's, that's the setting. We follow Nazareth 
a daughter of one of these so-called lines, linguist lines, and her trials and tribulations. In the background, the women of the linguists are doing something radical. They are building a women's language out of the idea of the Sapir-Whorf hypotheses. The Sapir-Whorf hypotheses, in short, you might know it from the book slash movie Arrival, is that our language changes the structure of our brain and actually changes the way that we perceive reality and therefore changes reality itself. So if we could proliferate La'adan, a women's language, a feminist language, we would change reality to become feminist. So one last thing, just want to read something, <laughs> a, a quote, which is just captures the wondrousness of this book. The language was included in our science fiction native tongue series. Ladan contains a number of words that are used to make unambiguous statements that include how one feels about what one is saying. According to Elgin, this is designed to counter male-centered languages' limitations on women who are forced to respond, I know I said that, but I meant this. And that is just so human. As a man who used to be a fucking idiot, I mean, I'm still a fucking idiot, but emotionally I was like, you know, a man. Um, yeah. <laughs> I oh, Lord, I was there. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I encountered it from the other perspective, right? The, the stupid fucking male-oriented fights over, well, you didn't tell me that you were feeling that, or why weren't you clear about what you were feeling? This is like fucking emotional, I'll, I'll, I'll say it, disability, right? This, this handicap that, of course, is not ingrained in us biologically, it's taught to us by society, of like, if you don't tell me what you feel, then I don't know what you feel, but all that bullshit, you can feel this woman screaming <laughs> her frustration through this language, which includes, very interestingly, it's like, it's amazing, this language exists, you can learn it, it like includes a part of the sentence that says what you're feeling about the sentence. So if, for example, it's a promise, you preface it with be. So if you say be, I'm going to, it's a promise that you will go to somewhere, right? It's just fucking mind-blowing. Um, that's it. That's like the setup and, and the premise. Something I find intriguing about this book on, on a structural end is that she clearly had an amount of faith in in the premise that she had um like this this very academic notion of what it was that was driving the book which i guess first thing aside can we can we stop for a moment to appreciate how like true to the self-image of sci-fi it is that she had an academic premise to her crazy alien people's book um <laughs> like that's one of the things that I really love about science fiction as a mode, which ob obviously there's a lot of negatives. We, we've talked about some of them, um, mo mostly on a cultural end. But there is something about... Uh, and, and it's funny because it comes from people who are, who are typically... The, the stereotypical image of someone like, I don't know, Elon Musk or, you know, Muskites or things like that are people who value science over touchy-feely stuff and they sneer yeah. at things like feminism and 
uh, communism as being too about the feelings, not about, you know, physics and the reality of the world, which just shows how little they understand about what they're commenting on. But the fact that at its best, and this does represent the spirit of sci-fi at its best for me, is it is about a fusion state between science and literature. It doesn't see them as competing whatsoever. And it doesn't play into that annoying sub-literary thing, which is that like literary fiction is for people who don't want to blah, 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 blah. It, like, it, it's totally agnostic to the questions that don't matter and just goes, no, each of these are tools for the other. You know, the act of writing this book is my way of exploring a real hypothesis about the real way that the world works. I want it to impact people, but I know that maybe an academic paper isn't going to impact people in the way that a book that they love will. So it's, I don't know, just like the perfect enunciation of that kind of spirit. Again, it it reminds me of, like, we don't have to ask how Philip K. Dick saw and experienced the world because it's so deeply embodied in his work. Like that, mm -hmm. that ultimate literary thing of there isn't a gap. There's this perfect continuity between creator, creation, and, and audience where it, it feels like this, this total encompassing thing. And it's the, I, I love that like imaginative capacity that especially in certain realms of either um, nonfiction and sometimes literary fiction stuff as well, you get almost trained to turn your eye downward from that kind of thing, to not have yeah. that kind of idealistic, ambitious reach. And obviously the negatives of, of ambition and idealism in that way is if it falls flat on its face, you can look like a fucking idiot. But there's there's a rigor in native tongue that like, the like her prose work is constantly checking and counter-checking her hypothesis. It doesn't read, it, it literally never reads like a screed. Like Elgin isn't, or Elgin rather, even though she would have all the right to like take to task um, the masculinist linguistic tendency, especially within uh, America, where she's from, where not even commenting on all of the English speaking world, but even just specifically America, there is a toughness and masculinist approach that has only recently gotten somewhat broken down and even then only in pockets and, you know, very incomplete project. Um, Despite having all the grounds to be like, here's why everyone's a piece of fucking shit, fuck you. Um, it's a very, you can tell that an academic wrote it because she presents counterexamples within the prose, but not in a way like, she doesn't draw sharp attention to them. She doesn't like point at them and be like, here's a counterexample. So there's an area where I might be wrong. She just sort of weaves in these little, these little pockets of checking and checking and rechecking her work continuously like especially the relations that humans have especially the linguist class the the female linguist class has with um has with aliens of this question of like maybe we are still approaching our own question wrong like maybe i don't Maybe I've ascertained that there is a problem correctly, but I haven't ascertained the the real identity of that problem. And 
maybe through continuously focusing on this question of a lens outside of humanity, um, I can get better at maybe it isn't a male-female language problem. Maybe there's a deeper language problem or maybe a completely different vector that I never would have thought of. Uh, and I just like, I loved that amount of rigor, which made her work within it that much more compelling because it didn't read yeah. like someone who walked in self-assured that she's already correct and is delivering the sermon of, of this correct thought. It feels very sincerely like I am active, I'm present tense thinking through a problem and I want you to be with me during the, during this thought process um, so we can check it that. together. I completely agree with that. And I think that also leads to one of the main things that I liked about this book. It's so patient. Mm. It really takes its time to cleverly construct its characters. So for example, I don't remember the character's name. And this book is so like obscure that I can't even find it when Googling it. Like there's no dramatis persona <laughs> anywhere. Um, but one character is this perfect woman. Right? She's not a linguist. She's just a normal woman. And she goes to this like wife schools in the society that teaches you how to be a wife. And she's this perfect wife, right? Like she looks, she's beautiful, but also in a very wholesome, like American way, all American, right? And she knows how to listen to men. They can just ramble and she always seems interested and she never nags and all that stuff. And she becomes, it happens like in the beginning of the novel, so it's not really a big spoiler. She becomes a killer because the government abducts her baby. So one of the lines in the book is that the government is trying to break the monopoly that the linguists have on language, and they're trying to understand their trick. But the thing is, there is no trick. It's just them like being Spartan and teaching their children very, very um, strictly. But they're abducting babies, and then later they make them in test tubes, which is where the test tubes come into the cover. Um, so they abduct her baby, but they tell her that it's a linguist who did it. Right, so she becomes a nurse um, in order to kill linguists, and slowly you see her character build up from this very revenge-oriented person towards an alliance with the linguist women, and this is where we get into spoiler territory. She becomes so enamored with the idea of La Adan, even though she's not a linguist and she doesn't understand the language, the promise of it is enough for her, I'm just going to spoil it, she kills the main linguist and she goes to prison. Like she takes the fall for it so that there won't be an investigation as to why he died. And so they can write it off as this was just her revenge. When in fact, he was the first one to figure out what the women were doing. Right? And she kills him so that the language would have an opportunity. Now why is that so important? Because she represents the promise. She's the women that... Elgin wanted to get to and that the linguists in the book want to get to. It's not enough for the linguist women, aka Elgin, right? A self-insert of Elgin to work with this language as a theoretical academical thing. It actually has to work with women. And I think that's where the harshness in that quote that I read comes from because she actually thought that if this book doesn't make Adan popular, then it failed. It wasn't just about the thought experiment. It wasn't just about writing for herself. She was genuinely looking forward to using La Dan to liberate women, which is like a level of earnestness and passion and subtlety that you don't you don't often see. And by the way, it goes back to what you said about, you know, the role of philosophers in 
Marxist or Hegelian thought, right? It's not just about, you know, commenting on the world and observing it. It's also about trying to use those observations as a vehicle for something useful, for something that changes it for the better, right? What, and it's just, what's, what's yeah. really funny about this is this actually taps on a thing that I was talking to you about um, before the episode um, of, so I'd been struggling myself personally, I, as I do off and on, with, with specifically the question of worthwhileness of work and yeah. how, how that had been paralytic for me of, you know, feeling sometimes like, is this worthwhile work? And getting clearly, clearly well-meaning responses from people, like clearly it's people who, you know, were, were trying to be helpful, but they're saying things like, well, if you felt meaning making it, then, you know, then it's meaningful or, you know, like worth in a capitalist society isn't really a good way to think about worth anyway. And my struggles with articulating what exactly I meant by worth and this hitting at precisely what it was that I meant, like that it's that kind of ambitious, the ambitious sensibility that worth is that this thing that came from me that I know is meaningful to me actually has resonance and utility and growth in the hands of another like that's what her vision was for her work it wasn't because there's something she could sit and talk about aliens to herself all day long and that's not yeah. necessarily art capital a art that's it i'm going full art idealist here this is rare i don't know <laughs> i'm normally an art negativist but she didn't want that little a art of this uh, this tchotchke that you make for yourself not to knock that there's a value to that and we've actually discussed that together on the show a number of times there is a value yeah. to the thing made for yourself but there is it's not an oppositional value but it is a different value when you make something for the world it's not for you it's from you but it's for this other thing and so i can there's something really like heartbreaking but you also want to give her a hug and be like no no you were right they just didn't yeah. when you hear like not only just hearing what it was she was trying to make with this but then you know witnessing the book itself where as you were mentioning if expect um i think this actually cuts across gender is pretty pretty well but especially in a patriarchal world if you're a man dealing with a non-man so any it like could be a woman could be a non-binary person of any kind of stripe, but that notion of the masculinist blockage of emotional language and being able to ascertain the emotions behind language and giving them equal uh, credential space. Um, that, I don't know, there was something very moving to the project itself for her, that it's like seeing that self-harshness that she had um, just it it cut me in a couple different places of like one i admire i admire so much the ambition behind that like that is that's what i want to see from stuff like this like it isn't the small little gesture that she did for herself like she wanted to better th I, I don't know i don't know i'm rambling at this point but i just like oh so okay it's hot take o'clock are you ready i'm ready Burn me. I think this book, let me start with a different hot take that I have. So there's the um, dystopian trinity, right? 
1984, Fahrenheit 451, and Brave New World. Yep. Here's the thing. Brave New World is the only one of those books which is good. Yeah, it no, is. I don't I don't think that's a hot take. I think that's that's just pretty yeah. spot on. Yeah. It's the only book that feels necessary, immediate. You feel Aldous Huxley, especially if you know his biography. We should do Aldous Huxley, by the way. Um, you feel him burning behind the page. Ray Bradbury and fucking <laughs> That guy. I, I like how you paused after Ray Bradbury and I I felt a complex efflorescence yeah. of emotions. Yeah. <laughs> um and fucking Joel Joel. That snitch. Um I I love Bradbury and it's because I love him that I hate him so much. Yeah, same. same. Like so like only people who like when when you were touched by like dandelion wine or the illustrated man and you know like like these things that reach you at a very young age and open certain doors for you and then you find out he was such a piece of shit like oh my god you can feel them doing a thought experiment right you can feel them divorced from what's happening and they're not burning i mean Fahrenheit 451, for God's sakes, is a conservative story. The people who burn the books are leftists. He wrote it against liberal college, whatever, uh-huh. coastal <laughs> elites, right? Um, and George Orwell, I'm not even going to get into that guy's history. Fuck that guy. So fucking. <laughs> that was the like the detached hot take setting up this hot take. The dystopian trinity of feminist science fiction is the left hand of darkness the handmaiden's tale and octavia butler's everything <laughs> like everything she wrote you can choose the parable of the sower you can choose wild seed and so on unlike the other trinity all those books are good yeah but i think that native tongue is better than them all of those and I love Left Hand of Darkness. I love. I was about to say, like, better than Left Hand of Darkness. That's the one yeah. where I was like... Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. And I'll go back to Handmaiden's Tale because that's the book that this book has the most in common with. Yeah. The Left Hand of Darkness is the most daring of all those books, right? As far as its intellectual imagination goes. But you can hear Ursula Le Guin doing the thought experiment there are didactic paragraphs inside that book telling you just telling you and not showing you what's happening right the discussion of gender is very it's like listening to a lecture that's not good octavia butler was writing from a very personal place and she was writing herself in many ways right and i feel her books Again, they're all amazing, right? I'm not, I'm not dissing her writing, but they, something is missing. All of her writing, by the way. I was never a big Butler fan. I recognize her talent, but it's always like passed me by. If that makes Same. sense. Same. Oh my god! Like I'm, I'm feeling yeah. very thankful right now because I keep. <laughs> anytime people Your are team. like, "Oh, don't you love like uh, Xenogenesis and you know yeah. Parable of the Sower?" And and I'm sitting there just like. Cringing, and I'm like, yeah, I love, I love, and I'm like, I, I, yeah, yeah. again, it was, there's no knock to it. It's like it's clearly well written, but I like, 
I felt like Octavia Butler or Octavia Butler wanted to live in the place in my heart that Ursula K. Le Guin had already like built a fortress. And I'm like, no, there's no more room. (laughs) Like all my love is gone. (laughs) And then, and then the last one, Handmaiden's Tale. Margaret Atwood is, is as an author is the best of all of those. It's like technical, just literary chops. She is just fucking tremendous writer. Amazing. Amazing. She like, puts her uh, mind to it. That's a big yeah. that's a big asterisk when yeah, she yeah. puts her I, mind I, to it. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And I think also Le Guin is overall the better writer, but as far as literary chops and skill, Atwood is like unparalleled from this group. But Handmaiden's Tale, I feel like is too liberal its conception of how dictatorship happens and how the patriarchy works is way way too crass and brutal and surface level right it misses the subtlety of how these things take root now native tongue it has ursula le guin's daring i mean for god's sake the woman built a fucking language yeah (laughs) talk about like ambition it has octavia's talent of writing feelings and emotions and thoughts right of writing people and its vision of how dystopia happens and what dystopia looks like is way sharper and more subtle than the handmaiden's tale and i'll give an example when they repeal the 19th amendment they also legislate a new law there is congress right you know, remember when Congress used to do things? Um, that was a thing. So they legislate this law, you know, detailing that now women are subordinate to their husbands and their fathers and they're not legal entities and so on. And then there's a second clause that says, but no one should harm women. They must be protected. They must be kept safe. That's what dystopia looks like. Dystopia doesn't manifest in the way that the handmaiden's tale shows it to oh men are walking around just raping women left and right and impregnating them and destroying their lives and beating them up they don't need to do that because it's not subtle enough that's how you get revolutions instead patriarchy and dystopia and authoritarianism is paternalistic it tells you i'm doing this for your own good it's subtle it points to the oppressed and it says what they're doing much better is this is this echoing stuff by the way you know like donald trump saying that african americans were never better off than under his rule for example or israelis saying that before israel palestinians were like savages and we came in here and we civilized them and we gave them medicine and all that shit that's the language of the oppressor and native tongue yeah. We we even we even have the 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 start and to, to touch on a point specific both to this book and to um and Handmaid, Handmaiden's Tale, we have the like horrific reality that I think is fundamental for anyone becoming literate in feminist um feminist thought and feminist causes of vectors of where certain kinds of abuse come from, where we get presented this image of random violence and that the patriarchal world exists to protect women from the random violence of the world, capital W. But then you look at number wise, where do these 
incidents actually occur, and it is predominantly things like family members and friends. So it's precisely when you juxtapose the reality of where do these abuses occur versus where we told they are occurring and who is protecting you, it is the people who presume this notion of I will protect my women who are in reality the monsters hurting them, which cuts to the core, I think, of both of oh, what you were saying, of like the, the notion of that paternalistic um, fascist violence that Native Tongue so deeply grapples with that Handmaiden's Tale just sort of... Granted, Handmaiden's Tale, I guess, in defense of it, it wanted to be like over the top in certain ways to just make people fucking get what the book was trying to say, but even still. <laughs> yeah. So when you bring all of that together, you get like such a deep and subtle vision of how these things work. And of course, as always, remember the saying, the number one principle, when you write about the future, you're actually writing about the present. Oh, yeah. So when you have a subtle book about the future and language, patriarchy, and how women are being controlled subtly through these means, you get a statement or a vision of how it's being done today how patriarchy uses language to control women today. And that's why I think this book is even more relevant today than it was when it was first published, when today we are in this confusion of the power of language, right? On one end, you have people saying, praxis is when you use the right words, right? like the extreme of this identity politics liberal idea of just don't say the wrong words and then you'll be fine, then you're okay. And on the other end, people saying language doesn't matter at all. It literally doesn't matter what words I use. What does it matter if I use like racial slurs or other kinds of offensive language? What does that matter? It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. And you're looking for a correct and a subtle middle ground that says, look, there's a relationship between ideas and the words that we use to express them, and the reality that manifests around us from our actions. That relationship is really complicated, and it can't be broken down to simple, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just flew out of my brain. It's <laughs> language, and I'm forgetting words. Love that shit. Heuristics. <clears throat> they can't be broken down into simple heuristics or rules of thumb. You have to engage with them. And you engage with them, surprise, for your language. So when you're enforcing things like a no slur policy, and when you're thinking about what is or isn't a slur, and who gets to define that, and who gets to keep using those words, on one end, your position can't be, if someone said the wrong word ever, then they are dead, and they are evil, and they must be destroyed. And on the other end, you can't say, it's totally fine that they said it. So, and again, going back to the, the start of this podcast, there's only 3% on one side that's saying that people who have said a slur should be killed or canceled or whatever you want to call it. And only 3% on the other side saying it literally doesn't matter if I use whatever words I want to use, right? And Native Tongue kind of touches on what we all feel or what I would like us all to feel that it's not as simple um and it's these relationships with language are not as as clear cut and, and the last thing i want to say is take all of that 
all that really smart stuff and put it inside into just a really good book, like mechanically, well-written, well-constructed. And you get like, this is a masterpiece. This is like, this should be winning nebulas and Yugos and whatever other fucking reward you can give it, you should be giving this to. Um, and it hasn't. It hasn't gotten that recognition, which is, which is a really, 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 really big shame. Yeah, it, uh, it, I guess, as like a, a wrap up kind of defense of her, her overall project, like not just this book, but my brain is slowing down because I'm trying to think of this as the right approach. Because I think it would be almost a disservice to her to isolate this book to just itself. Um, fantastic book i'm glad that i read it and I, I literally had not heard of it or really deeply been familiar with her work until you put it in front of me and this is again sort of the the endless fruits of why i'm continuously clapping like a seal and i was like i made the right choice reaching out to eat and yay um uh but that the fact that she made further installments of this and from i, I perused a bit of those before um like after i finished this book and thankfully they do the good version of what I think science fiction series writing is, which is it's not about, it's not Harry Potterification, not even necessarily yeah. to knock Harry Potter. I fuck JK Rowling, of course, but just thinking about the books, I don't even mean it as a knock against those, but the thing that's exciting about series and science fiction is more like what happens in the foundation series where it's. You take you, it to its conclusion. Exactly. You you have the same premise and maybe you have different vectors that you're exploring where you go, oh, I didn't really think about these angles. And so I need a new book to cover those angles. And that's that seems to be where she went like that. There is. It reminds me of the same kind of like rigor and richness that led to Ursula K. Le Guin getting a Grand Master of Science Fiction Award. But and this is the. Anyone who's a huge Ursula K. Le Guin fan and knows about the um, the sociology of science fiction fandom knows where this is about to go. Why did it take so long for her to get that recognition? Now, th oh, I, wait, I gotta stop you here. I'm I'm gonna take it to a different direction and be even more like pissed off. How the fuck did she not get a Nobel Prize? Yeah, how the I, fuck did that happen? They've that given posthumous ones before. I hope that, like, I don't, yeah, there are, there are moments that, like, a similar thing. The Pulitzer gives an award for music every year, um, and it gives it to really goddamn great music. How come only one rap record has ever won it? Yep. Ever. Yep. Like, that doesn't, yeah, yeah. so it, we, have, we have similar vectors of questions here, and there's, um, this ultimately, I think, inscribes why things like Slipstream have been, and contemporary sci-fi, have been a big thing of what we've been covering here over the past year or so since Eden has come on. Because obviously, we... I, I feel comfortable speaking for Eden here. We we love the classics of sci-fi. Like, I don't... Like, I forced Gareth to read Dune because I fucking love Dune. I fucking love it. Like, this yeah. is no knock to those things. I, I grew up with Asimov. I have like every science fiction fan, complex, often adversarial feelings about Heinlein. <laughs> uh, <laughs> where, you know, like, there's, it's, there's no lack of love there. Um, like I, we mentioned before, like, you only, 
you only have a science fiction fan's hatred of Ray Bat Bradbury because you have a science fiction fan's love of Ray Bradbury. Like it's it's the same way that you can only hate your father as much as you do because he's your father. Um, like if it was a random guy who just didn't care about your feel, my dad was was fantastic, but uh, you know, gesturing to that general image. Um, but there are these whole worlds within the realm of science fiction that even if you're a longtime fan, you may have legitimately just never been introduced to them. Like a lot of times we get this, it, it especially comes from like young adult Twitter um, and places like that. And I, I don't mean to knock the spirit of what they're doing. I disagree a lot with the um, the manifestation of it. Um, but I think the spirit of like, where is the queer representation? Where is the representation of people of color? Where is the representation of of women of non-binary people of trans people like where where is this stuff um i think it improperly gets answered when we go we have to make it because it's not there because that's not true it is yeah. there and has always been there it just like if i publish a book and you take my book and bury it in the desert, I can't be mad at the world for not reading my book. I can be mad at you for making it so that no one can read it. Now, this yep. doesn't mean that we shouldn't be making contemporary work. That's why we've also focused on reading contemporary women authors and contemporary queer authors. And Gareth and I were doing that as well. Like It, it feels like if you're engaged in the world of literature, and especially coming from cishet white or white passing or white coded men, you have to do that stuff. Like it's, it's sort of like, it, it's not a sense of white guilt. It's more it's, like responsibility. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I'd feel like a fucking dick if I didn't. Um, yeah. And so there's a reason why we cover that contemporary stuff, but there's an importance here as well with us covering the historical matter of, of these authors, because it's sort of, and to tie back to Audre Lorde, you see arguments sometimes of philosophy and the teaching of philosophy is the teaching of a bunch of dead white men. And we don't need philosophy because that's for pretentious dorks. What we need is these the stuff about real life and real people. And you want to tell them like, those people you're citing are philosophers. It's part of the grand patriarchal white supremacist lie that they're not coded that way. Audre Lorde was a philosopher. Bell Hooks was a philosopher. Angela Davis is a philosopher. These people, like, they are part of the canon that just had a big sheet thrown over them. Um, like, exactly. And this, touches, <laughs> this touches on a similar thing that we get. Now there are complex reasons to have animosity towards say Moby Dick or Ulysses or Finnegan's wake or, you know, these, these shibboleths of, of the world of, of literature, yeah. but some improper reasons is you shouldn't be mad at them because they're the canon. Like you should be mad at the thing that made them the canon and didn't hold up Virginia Woolf as as an equal peer to James Joyce like that's yeah. that's the villain not the the books didn't do this people did this social structures did this this it's at a, a broader point that we make pretty consistently here which is you need to raise your the the scope and ambition of your animosity like it shouldn't be aimed at atomic things like this book is what kept you know these people from being recognized no it's a social structure and it's a way of imagining and conceiving of the world and then reinforcing that through social mechanisms that prohibited certain authors and certain works from reaching the same level of acclaim. 
Herman Melville didn't personally go out and stop queer authors. Also, there's a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of evidence that Herman Melville was probably a queer man, but, um, yeah. So yeah, it's, I'm mad that I'd never like really read her stuff before this. Like, I'm not, I'm obviously yeah, not, mad you. I'm, I'm happy with you, but I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Where, where did it go? So before we go to the music and wrap this up, there's also in case I haven't made the sale enough for this book, please read it. There's also poetry in this book um, that Elgin wrote. And guess what? It's fucking excellent. So, I want to read one of those poems um, before we go to music because it just, as poetry does, um, captures everything we try to say in in a much um, non-mediated way. So this is from um, an opening of one of the chapters in the book. They are encumbered with secret pregnancies that never come to term. There are no terms you don't see. They drag their swollen brains about with them everywhere, hidden in pleats and drapes and cunning pouches. And the unbearable keep kicking, kicking under the dura mater. It is no bloody wonder they have headaches. Hold them to your ear, lumpy as they are, and pale. That roar you hear is the surge of the damned unspeakable being kept back. Stone will not dilate, will not stretch, will not tell. It shivers, cleaves, moves uneasily. At its core, the burgundy lava simmers, making room. There are volcanoes at the bottom of the sea. Those pretty green things swaying are their false hell. Deliver us? Ram inward the forceps of the patriarchal paradigm and your infernal medicine and bring forth the ancient offspring with their missing mouths? I think not. Not bloody likely. That's really goddamn beautiful. That is so fucking powerful. It's so good. Um, please read this book. Native Tongue. Suzette Hayden Elgin. Please, I'm the uh, the only thing left to follow that up is um, some heavy fucking metal. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm trying to think of like. So like there's that emptiness record that came out, which I'm loving, but it, it almost like that. That would feel weird to play after this episode. <laughs> like there's something about that. Like I, I'm fine playing some like crusty ass gross death metal, but like ultra weird avant-garde stuff like that i'm suddenly like mm, is that is that the vibe though so i'm but, trying to find some like some really gross shit i mean <laughs> do you have an idea i mean if you, if you don't mind doing something that's not totally new it's like 2020 we could i have an idea uh what's um, what's that idea i'm 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 looking at a list of stuff right now so i'm do uh, you like do you like meshuga langdon uh yes good so <laughs> what if what if like they went back to making interesting music right instead of doing like meshuga music what it what that's what? my take that's my what? opinion what let me let, Eden. Let me just what <laughs> no, look look they are one of those bands now admittedly that... my favorite record from them is nothing and i strongly prefer like the 
contradictions collapse up to catch 33 period. So I guess I'm not technically super far from you, but also not, like, you can't come swinging from a sugar. They're an all time band. Not saying, I'm not saying they're bad. They're an amazing band. I love Chaos Fear. I love nothing. I love Catch 33, all that stuff. God, I'm Chaos Fear is so fucking good. Super good. Like that album changed metal forever. Um, I am in agreement with Devin Townsend when he said we all rip off the sugar. Um, but they have become an artifact, right? Like they've been reified. They keep making Meshuga. Like Meshuga. I mean, it's, it's, ulti Meshuga. it's ultimately why Opeth, um, well, Opeth's yeah. change wasn't nearly as big as everyone makes it out to be, but that's ultimately why they did that because they were like, we yeah. can be Opeth forever. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I get you. So, but, but then there's a band called Humavoid. That's a like. Oh a my stupid... God. Yes. Yes. I covered this record. <laughs> yeah. So oh my guys... God. This record's really fucking good. So I, 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 I made a, I, I have access to the Invisible Oranges Twitter and I, I, I'm active there. I made a comment recently about every time I find a new gent band that I like, I throw a chair through a wall. Cause I think one of the few areas where we disagree is I have a, it's a lot harder for gent to land for me, like a lot harder. Yeah. Um, which that's just taste. I mean, there's enough of it that's good now that I'm like, okay, it, it is it is a worthwhile vector. I'm just not a... But this one, oh my fucking God! Yeah, this rule. So it's like, it's like, okay, so they released this, it's called Lidless, and they released it in August of 2020, and it's like, what if you took Meshuga? So the guitars are very Meshuga, and I think they're more Meshuga than a lot of other gent bands like Tesseract or even Structures. They they kept the heaviness and the attack of the guitars on them. But then you made the vinyls, the vinyls, the synths, Jesus Christ, the synths. <laughs> I'm looking at the Bandcamp page and it says vinyl. Um, you made the synths really fucking loud. And also they're being played on like a guitar, um, at least in the clips. So they're really loud and present. Like I'm talking Flesh God Apocalypse levels, right? Like really, but good. Loud unlike shit. Flesh God Apocalypse, boom, rim shot. Yeah. Fuck that band. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't like those guys either. So, um, <laughs> so they're really loud, and then you add like a vocalist that can do the deep Jens Kidman goal stuff, but also has a really beautiful and powerful, clean singing voice, and. You add like to, to 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 close everything off, like really weird compositional ideas, but actual, not like oh syncopation, you know stuff that Meshuggah did in the eighties. You actually take it to the next level and you introduce stuff from from jazz and stuff like um, what are the bands that I'm looking for? God Kaiser Complex, if you've heard them, do that a lot. Yeah. Um, Lil Gruber with Engulfing Oblivion does a lot of that jazz kind of influence oh, stuff. Okay. So so related note. How fucked up is it that I only listened to that Engurgitating Oblivion record like two months ago? Fucked up, dude. Like, I, I, I didn't know it had a 22-minute-long song. Like, I'm so dumb. I looked at it, and I was yeah. like, okay, that's yeah. probably like Deathcore or something. Dude, no, I'm insane. so stupid. It's so good. It's super good. Um, so I just had to, like, I'm, I'm an idiot sometimes. I listen to a lot of metal, <laughs> and I will sometimes just skip records that are great because I'm dumb. Like, um, Vision, Wallows, and Symphonies of Light is like... God damn, so good. Yeah, that's um the thing that I so one of the things that I love about this band is they seem to grasp um so uh, we've talked about this before the the inspiration problem. Uh, so there's a Bill Bruford quote who is a saint in my book because I love progressive rock and I'm a drummer, which means that that man is like he may as well be the Buddha to me. 
Um, you play in Genesis, yes, and King Crimson, you're gonna you're gonna be an all timer for me. Um, yeah. He has a comment that if you want to sound like Bill Bruford, don't emulate Bill Bruford records. Emulate the things that he cites as influences because you will always, and it's, it's the same thing that drives um, the, I am recording this in a room experiment where you record reading a speech in a room and then you place a recording of the speech in the same position in the room that you were when you read it and you play it and record that playback over and over and you eventually get degradation um, or photocopying a copy um, over and over and over. The thing that I love about Humavoid is they seem to grasp the the why and the how of Mashuga, not just the what. Like it yeah. wasn't just, oh, there's syncopation. So yeah. in Chaosphere, one of the things that I love about that record is it does something that records at their best can do, which is have good ass liner notes. Can't speak highly enough for good liner notes enough. This is like one of the things that drove me bananas as a, as a young music fan. And in it, they cite a bunch of music that inspired them to make Chaosphere. And some of it you would never guess. Um, like they cite Tori Amos, who's fucking amazing. Um, and the idea that the members of Meshuggah love Tori Amos makes more sense the more you think about it. But, um, but two big ones that get factored out of their music a lot are Cynic and Alan Holdsworth. Um, I mean, we on paper we used to talk a lot about how that Holdsworthian guitar solos over Meshuggah, but it seemed like a lot of gent bands completely skipped that part when they were making this new genre of progressive metal, they, they ignored the whole jazz space. They replaced it with other things to be fair. And sometimes it worked really well, but very few of them. I think the only one that really did it was a uh, Copra Fago um, that they really, I need a new record from them. They put out one album in like 2005 um, yeah. called like un unorthodox creative something. Don't remember its name, but it's unorthodox something. That, that sounded exactly like Meshuggah because there's weird syncopated stuff and then weird liquidy Alan Holdsworth jazz fusion. Um, and Humavoid does that, but they seem to also tap into not just Cynic, but this brief-lived interstitial band in the, in the lifespan of Cynic called Portal, um, yeah. which if you listen to the recorded Portal record, which thankfully they put the demos out of it officially now, you can hear how they got from Focus to Trace to Nair. Like, that evolutionary gap makes a lot more sense, and it's a lot smoother um, because it, it fills that space. But they, they tap into that, like, very celestial, um, like, clean female vocals and this very this very big and grand thing that, like, Devin Townsend also does, but they keep that liquid jazz fusion-y vibe, and they, oh, God, this record is so fucking... It's so colorful, too. That's the other thing. It's like, the cover of the Humavoid record doesn't lie. It's like, it's full of all these, like, bright synthetic colors. Yep. I'm so stoked you said this. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think we're gonna play Aluminum Rain, which Hell has yeah. a, guest, a guest part by this guy, fucking Finnish names, I can never goddamn pronounce them. Liro, Iro Rantala, I think it's pronounced. He's a Finnish jazz pianist, like, he's a big shot. Um, he does all sorts of weird stuff, and they got him on this guest spot, which is, like, fucking mind-blowing. The, the piano composition and execution here is so good. And just, just listen to all the stuff we said. Listen to the attack on the guitars and how they merge with the vocals and the synths and all that stuff. Um it's it's really good, and I only recently discovered this album. Uh, Noyan, the co-host of the Heavy Blog podcast, he's the one who found it over on YouTube. So shout out to him. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, I printed uh, this in. Uh, so I have a column over at Consequence of Sound called Mining Metal. Our original title was Thunder Underground, which I think is a better title, but other people were <laughs> using it. Um, it's also a, an Ozzy Osbourne song, so it's like it felt really fitting, but other people yeah. used it, and you you have an editor so that someone can think about SEO bullshit, and you, as a writer, don't have to worry about it. And yeah. Whatever it happens. But yeah, I, I covered this on the month that it came out, because, you know, I'll um i'll do these deep dives into like metal archives and stuff and you you know about this because you also write about metal but you literally will listen to like one to two hundred albums just like not always all the way through but like and this one just left out i was like holy fuck oh this is amazing um so like and i i hadn't seen anyone else talk about it so i'm like this is why i'm so over the moon i'm like "Ah." especially you guys over at heavy blog i fucking love your work um yeah, sorry, um, I'm, I'm I'm just ooh, I'm fanboying. Um, over both Eden's <laughs> other work. So, like, I invited Eden on not just because I know that he loves philosophy and 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 literature and has all this other stuff, but also because I've adored his work and the the general work at Heavy Blog. He's heavy for a really long time. It's a fantastic fucking site. So I'm just like, ah! um, so, yeah. Um, so here's Humavoid, uh, with Aluminum Rain off of the record Lidless. <laughs> 